Congratulations, Spain, on their first ever Women's World Cup victory. It's Monday, August 21st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Spain defeated England 1-0 to win the 2023 Women's World Cup, and women's soccer is exploding in popularity. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports writer Doug Greenberg. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me, Owen. Yeah, uh, really fun tournament. Uh, you know, Spain, I don't know, was the most expected of winners, certainly not when the uh, tournament started, but I think that's like such a beautiful thing for for the women's game. You know, we haven't seen something like that with with the U.S. dominating for so long and, and you know, only the fifth uh, different champion in history. So it's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, it was a cool tournament, you know, despite the, the U.S.'s disappointing outcome. Um, yeah, before we get into like the, the dollars and everything else, yeah, any thoughts just on the Spanish team or the tournament in general? Yeah, I mean, Spain winning, like I said, is it's cool. Um, they were, I believe they were the second favorite in the betting odds after the group stage. Uh, number one was England. Um, and England, you know, they were expected to win it all because they were the uh, European champions, um, you know, from the Euro tournament last year, which, by the way, you know, set its own kind of records with viewership and attendance and all that good stuff. Um, so for Spain, but for Spain to come out and, and win this thing is really, really cool. Um, they got a great young team, um, you know, so to see like a player like, for example, Sal- Salma Pariello, um, she was just absolutely awesome this tournament. She's a world class athlete. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like I said, Spain was not the most expected champion. Um, so I, and I think that's just such a great thing for the women's game, you know, that there are not just these powerhouses running around, even a team like England that had already had, you know, the big European accolade for Spain to kind of come out of nowhere and win the world cup. Um, not completely out of nowhere cause they're a very good team, but, um, you know, it, it's really, really awesome. Yeah, I think it is good for the global women's game that it's not just like the U.S. And if it's not them, it's England. It's like, you know, we're, we're getting less predictable. Um, and speaking of the global women's game, uh, this was a big win for FIFA, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was I mean, you know, like before the tournament, it, it wasn't ideal. Um, there was the whole controversy with the media rights, um, how they weren't able to lock down the um you know europeans until like the very last minute japan literally i think on the day of they locked in the media rights um and and granted i think that's because of the time difference with australia um and but overall this was a huge win for fifa you know more games meant they met they set attendance records um you know they set uh ticker sh- ticket viewership records and honestly the the viewership in general even despite the uh, time difference was really, really good. Um, you know, in the United States, for example, half of the matches were in the, you know, crack of dawn, crazy twilight hours. Um, but the average viewership for the U.S. women's four games was actually a little bit higher than it was for the same, for the window of the same four games of the previous tournament. So that's really, really a testament to, you know, especially in the United States, how this game has grown, but really all over the world. Um, you know, the Australia, semifinal game that they played and they lost unfortunately was the most watched game it was the i'm sorry it was the most watched tv show in the history of uh the tracking method that they've used since 2001 so in at least 22 years it was the most watched tv program in australia's history so that's really really impressive and and shows how far the game has come 
Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, Australia, you know, despite they, I guess they finished fourth uh, overall, still a great story. They made a great run, um, you know, not a team you expect necessarily to to be among the top. So it was great that they got a run in too. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, this was all, you know, with most of the world, this had these games playing in the middle of the night. And and so to put up some some pretty solid numbers bodes well bodes very well for the 2027 World Cup wherever that is. Yeah, and and where they decide to put it is going to be really interesting. Um, you know, the the U.S. and Mexico have submitted a joint bid, which I think is. I mean, of the ones that have been submitted, I think it's the I think it's one of the most intriguing. Um, for what it's worth, the other ones are a joint bid between Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany. Brazil and South Africa, and then there's the U.S. and Mexico bid. But the U.S. and Mexico bid uh, is is really really intriguing for a couple of reasons, in my opinion. Obviously, we're a little bit biased, but part A is obviously the Men's World Cup is going to be in North America in 2026, um, and then if they were to have it in the U.S. and Mexico the year after, it would be the first time in history that they have the Men's and Women's World Cups in the same country two years in a row. Um, I think that would be really cool. It would give FIFA a really big leg up on media rights, um, especially with Fox and Telemundo's uh, contracts coming up um, in 2026. They can, you know, this will be the first time that the Women's World Cup gets negotiated independently in the United States. And that would, you know, having it in the United States would make it a really, really easy sell for FIFA. Um, ideal, ideal hours, I, you know, primetime games for the United States, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, the United States has the infrastructure ready to go, you know, in four, on four years notice, it shouldn't be any problem for them. Mexico's got the infrastructure, obviously having just prepared for a men's world cup. Um, I, I think that would be really intriguing, but you know, it, it could have given the time difference, like the, this could have been uh, a little bit tougher for, you know, FIFA, but I think they've got to be pretty pleased with what they saw and it should give them some pretty good momentum going into 2027. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dan Cordemont, I know you've spoken to um, the uh, MLS he- uh, VP of communications, I believe is his title going off memory. Anyway, mm-hmm. he said, you know, we're, we're hopeful for 2027. But if we don't get 27, we're, we're pretty confident we're going to get 2031. So yeah, I think it's it's going to be soccer mania in this country starting pretty soon. Yeah. Doug Greenberg, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, Owen. Happy to happy to stop in. Tech entrepreneur Victoire Codevina Reynal is reportedly raising a hundred million dollars to invest in multiple women's soccer teams. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome back, Eric. Hello. So, what what do we know about this this soccer fund? What's the vision here? So the vision is really almost to kind of mirror what we've seen in a number of other instances on the men's side, not just in soccer, certainly soccer, but also in other sports, but specifically soccer, things like 7-7 Partners and Eagle Football Holdings, which have sort of gobbled up a number of teams in lower division European leagues, maybe some American teams, and sort of put together a bit of a multi-team holding company. Again, this exists a lot on the men's side, but with this new Mercury 13 uh, that Reynal is leading, uh, really aims to do the same thing specifically on the women's side. Right. And and this speaks, you know, both to that multi-club model, but also, of course, to the growth of the women's game, which we're seeing, you know, it, you know, the, the culmination of the Women's World Cup. 
Absolutely. And, and so there's a couple of different trend lines. So obviously, we've been talking specifically a lot about uh, women's soccer and, and the Women's World Cup, as you correctly referenced. But we've been sort of in the midst of this really historic moment for women's sports writ large, not just in soccer. Uh, glo- uh, globally, but domestically with the NWSL, basketball with the WNBA, a lot of new uh, all-time records broken in terms of franchise valuations, expansion fees, those kinds of things. You know, all sort of signs are pointing north. Um, you know, as more and more fans gravitate to the great competition that this always was, uh, and you know, taking advantage of some of the additional media shelf space that these leagues have finally been able to get and properly get. Uh, And so a lot of different trend lines are converging together. And so you put that together, you raise some money, and you've got a really interesting thing going on here. Yeah. And one detail that caught my eye in all this is that for now, she's staying out of the U.S. and and targeting teams in other countries because the idea is that there's more growth there. I'm not sure I necessarily buy the more growth. I think that's maybe debatable because, you know, the NWSL, uh, Jessica Berman's doing a great job and that that league's been on a rocket ride. Uh, but just wrote the other day about a team in that league, the Chicago Red Star, selling in a deal worth up to $35.5 million. That's not even necessarily the high watermark. Uh, it is for an existing team for now. But we had the expansion team in, in the Bay Area go for $53 million in, in terms of an expansion fee. And the numbers are very big. I think that was part of the calculus for Mercury 13. And that I will agree is that it's very hard to put together a multi-club model. Uh, you know, if you know, your entire initial raise is going to be gobbled up in one or two clubs. Um, I think the idea is to buy some clubs that could be had for maybe three, five, seven, ten million dollars and put together a nice portfolio of maybe six, eight clubs, uh, 10 clubs, what have you. I think that's more the initial model, but there's growth happening everywhere. There's growth happening in the U.S. and women's soccer. There's growth happening elsewhere around the world, too. Yeah. And, and these multi-club models, um, I, I find them very interesting. It makes a lot of sense that, yeah, especially when there are still teams out there that you can get for single digit millions. Um, and those teams, you know, because of their they're smaller, they're, they have less of a payroll. They have you know less funding behind them. less staff. And, and they have pro rel, too. That's a right, big right. component as well that we don't have here in the U.S. Right. Exactly. So you could take a lower division team, um, centralize operations, you know, with marketing and your ability to get sponsors and all that and try to yeah, build your way up, uh, up across the pyramid. And so that team you bought for five million dollars, suddenly it's worth 20, 30, 40, 50 million. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. It's sort of uh, literally a buy low, sell high kind of model. Uh, and again, there's there's a little bit more flexibility in the way that competition is structured elsewhere in the world that those entry points become a little bit more accessible. So again, I totally get the strategy there, particularly for an entity like this still in its early stages, and I'm sure has a, a long runway and a multi-year business plan that they want to execute. It'll be interesting to see. So when we think of U.S. soccer, we think of MLS and NWSL. There's also the USL and the USL could be, you know, the, the teams are, I, I think, cheaper. And uh, though. I, oh, yeah. Right. And also they may well, it seems like they're going to institute a pro rel model. I they're wonder if that gets it. them into this, um, you know, gets private equity firms more interested there. Yeah, it's it's always sort of a tough thing because, um, you know, from a competitive standpoint and having that sort of full on meritocracy, it's a very appealing entity. Uh, and I've had a lot of conversations with people around the world about this, like, why doesn't the U.S. have more of a pro rel system? And 
you know, what I always tell them is that inevitably, um, these clubs, as they get to the top tier and certainly MLS clubs, either established or coming in as expansion or whatever, they want to build a big new facility. And that's part of the deal. And we've just had a number of conversations about, you know, whether it be the Kansas City Royals or other teams wanting to build a new facility that were, requires some level of public sector involvement. And the public sector involvement wants to know that that team's going to stay around. And very often there's legal covenants saying we're going to give you this money, but this team is going to stay in this league, what have you. And that just makes the, that fluidity much more difficult if you're asking the public sector for literally hundreds of millions of dollars to help build a new facility. Right, exactly. Because the Kansas City Royals would have been in AAA a long time ago if right. we had relegation right. here. But like you literally had a and I when I was in D.C., this was part of the deal in terms of bringing the Expos in that, yeah, that was a fully publicly funded stadium. But it was written in that that team stays in Major League Baseball and it stays in the National League. And that was part of the deal. Right. Yeah. And you yeah. And of course, if you're on the public side of that, if you're going to be coughing up all that money, yeah, you want some. some They want want their own downside protection and it's easily justifiable. Yeah. Right. All right. Very interesting. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Up next, we dive in deeper on the multi-club model with one of the first people to do it, that being Josh Wander, co-founder of the private equity firm 777. What you'll hear in this conversation is that this multi-club model wasn't something they decided to do from the get-go, but arose naturally from a private equity firm simply looking for value. That conversation is next. I am joined now by Josh Wander, co-founder and managing partner of 777. Welcome, Josh. Hey, Owen. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So um, let's just start super high level. What is 777? What do you guys do? So 777 is a holding company that I founded uh, in um, 2015. And um, today it invests uh, broadly across seven um, verticals, uh, aviation, insurance, consumer commercial finance, litigation finance, uh, some traditional direct lending, sports, media, and entertainment, and um, you know we we invest largely in businesses that um, can create long term, high quality, predictable cash flows. And through that sort of mandate, we got into sports investing, um, uh, primarily through um, the investment in in media rights or, or cash flows that from media rights, and um, uh, that led us ultimately to the world of investing in sports teams. Yeah, and when you list off the seven um, seven areas you're in. Sports and sports media does seem like a bit of an outlier there just in terms of the the categories you, you work in uh, and you have stakes in seven teams, like seven is the number of the day. Um, so why does sports fit into your purview? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. And, you know, my background was um, primarily uh, in specialty finance. And so, I, you know, I started my career building specialty finance businesses and businesses that created interesting, higher yielding cash flows. Um, and um, um, while it doesn't seem like sports is a natural fit for that, um, the, the primary cash flow uh, that, that most sports teams um 
recognized as revenue is uh, is a cash flow that that results from um, from some form of meteorite, and that meteorite is usually a longer term, uh, high quality, predictable cash flow. So it has a lot of the similar economic characteristics of the things that I was investing in or creating previously, whether they were in mortgage businesses or lending businesses or off the run insurance businesses. Um, and so uh, the, the cash flow characteristics, the, the fundamental um, driver of uh, uh, of revenue of return for these businesses is, is similar. It's a it's a it's a long term um, high quality cash flow, and um, and in, in the case of sports teams, that comes through usually your meteorite. And when you're looking for a team to invest in, my guess would be that the most important thing is the league it's in and the team itself. In my in how I figure it would be secondary. Is that accurate or not really? You know, it depends, um, and it depends on your investing strategy. Um, you know, our strategy has been to um, to both identify uh, leagues where we think there's meaningful upside, um, and and that upside usually relative to say uh, the other leagues that, that the other major leagues out there, and also clubs where we think um, there is real convexity. So uh, where that that club has the capacity to outgrow its peers, um, and um, you know there have to be sort of some. Some some fundamental uh, market characteristics for for convexity to exist. So they're, they're, a club has to be uh, distressed relative to its peers. It's had to underperform um, oftentimes relative to its peers. There has to be um, uh, some type of uh, uh, positive secular trend. So you know you're 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 seeing uh, the the growth of a league or a region or the you know the uh, population growth in a particular area. Um, so what, what we've tried to do is marry those things. We tried to invest in in leagues where we think there's going to be meaningful growth, and that growth um, uh, supported by or by revenue growth. Usually, that that's uh, that's a league where we think that the media rights revenues are going to increase. Um, in recent history in, in, in football, that, that's usually been the result of one of two things. It's either been the result of the league gaining um, in popularity um, or potential third-party investment into that league, which has created some you know un- unusual cash flow relative to its history. Um, and then with respect to clubs, clubs that have been in distress, so uh, they've been in either recent or, or long-term financial distress, so where we see some some value in, in building um, systems uh, uh, and uh, business functions that didn't exist previously to help those clubs regain um, or achieve for the first time uh, revenue uh, or revenue growth that they hadn't previously had. Um, um, and or, um, you know, there's a there's sort of more of a macro or a, 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 a geographic play there. The population, there's, there's pretty serious population growth in an area or in a town or, um, you know, we see um, factors uh, surrounding the club not uh, related to football that we think are really interesting. Yeah, that's helpful in how I understand this whole thing. And some of that, particularly around distressed clubs, gets into what I wanted to talk about next, which is that you were one of the the early players in the multi-team model where, you know, we've like the Man City group also, you know, they own Manchester City. They also own the um, one of the, the MLS clubs in New York. And, um, you know, they've got other teams spread around the world. This is becoming more and more of a thing. So, um, but you guys were early on, on that. What benefits do you get out of it? And why did you think this would be worthwhile? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, we didn't initially set out to to be a multi club model, and in fact, you know, we we didn't we didn't actually initially set out to be a club owner. We, you know, we, we initially set out to be rights holders um, and to to uh, to invest in that in that long term cash flow. Um, ultimately, the teams um, became a proxy for those rights for for us, and 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 uh, it, that manifested itself in, in our investment strategy. And when we bought one club, um, uh, we began to think that there there had to be a sort of better way. To, to manage these clubs, we, you know, but the the acquisition of uh, of, uh, of the first club um, gave us unique insight into the inner workings of these clubs and and how um, uh, how we may be able to help them um, by doing a lot of the things that we were doing in sort of all of the other areas of business, whether they be operating you know airlines or insurance companies um, or lending businesses. Um, there seemed to be some um, some crossover in um, in the ability to help businesses by by implementing um, really solid uh, business uh, business functions. Um, and so um, I, I think it started as uh, sort of, you know, let's invest in one club. And then as we, we really dug in, um, we began to believe that there was a lot of crossover in the things that we do in the, in this, let's, let's call it the traditional business world uh, to the sports investing world. Um, so t- today, you know, as we, as we sit uh, as one of the larger MCO models in the world, um, we think that the the model itself creates meaningful synergies um, and it diversifies our exposure. So, uh, you know, if we were an investor in one club, we would be subject to the performance and frivolity uh, of that club in that particular market. Now that we've invested in seven clubs, we've been able to diversify our risk across that, you know, one seven clubs in seven different markets. Um, and if uh, in any given year a, a particular club is, is uniquely unsuccessful, then um, we're not beholden to that uh, lack of success or that failure. Um, and we, we have the ability to, uh, to manage risk across uh, the portfolio of clubs. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Josh Wander, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Owen. That is it for today. Hit that subscribe button. We have more great content and interviews coming your way. And if you're enjoying the show, drop us a rating. It makes a big difference. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.